as I mentioned just now, you know, we have this really unique uh, opportunity, I guess, as the church um, at the start of the year to do a couple of things, uh, I suppose. The first one is that we get to look back and remember what's happened in the previous year, I guess. We get to reflect uh, on what 2022 was. And I'm sure for some of us, it was a year filled with fond memories. And for others, you know, perhaps a year that we'd like to forget sooner rather than later. I heard an amen there. So uh, I think I'm on, on point with that one. But uh, we, have this, we have this sense in which we look back, don't we, on this previous season uh, and look for opportunities, even if they were hard to find, uh, to give God thanks for his faithfulness that he brought us through that year, despite what may have happened. And there's this kind of sense in which that's important, not so, at the beginning of the year. And then I suppose, secondly, we don't only look back, but we also look ahead. We also look ahead at what's to come. You know, we, we are already done with the first week of January, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, for some people, looking ahead this year means finishing studies. Maybe it means moving up the corporate ladder or finding a job. Uh, or maybe, you know, if you're retired, finding a new coffee shop. I don't know, <laughs> making all of us jealous. But uh, we have this opportunity to, to, to kind of look ahead and place before God our hopes, our dreams, uh, our goals, our, our dreams, our visions for this year. And um, just on the point of career goals, you know, uh, and when it comes to serving God in the workplace, this is just a little uh, side note. Um, but, you know, when you become a Christian, uh, you don't, you know, you don't check your career at the door, right? We don't, we don't check our intellect at the door. You know, and just kind of bunker down and read our Bibles alone for a year. I mean, unless you sort of, you know, John the Baptist, 2023. But when you become a Christian, you, 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 you now live by faith and you're an ambassador for God in your career, right? You actually take up a, a, a even greater level of enthusiasm and motivation for what God is calling you to do. It's a, it's a higher level of passion to make a difference for him in the workspace, right? Um, I just felt that I had to uh, mention that this morning. Um, there's just this, this like subtle thing out there that apparently says when you become a Christian, you just do nothing in the world, but it's the opposite. You make more of a difference. But um, in a sense, at the beginning of the year, we have both these opportunities. We look back and give thanks, and we look ahead and place our trust in God. And it's really got to do with renewing of your mind, doesn't it? We get to renew our minds about things. We get to have a fresh perspective on things. It's kind of resetting our focus on what matters most um, and where we want to spend our time this year things on things that matter most. And I suppose if I could share personally, just for me, there seems to be a developing word this year that I would, I would have the wisdom to know what requires my time and what doesn't uh, and to spend it wisely. Um, but as we, as we consider this, this, this really precious opportunity, uh, we, we thought, you know, what, what, what better way to celebrate it than by, than by receiving uh, communion together, which we'll do towards the end of the service. It's one of the primary acts of worship for a believer, isn't it? It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the primary way that we get to stop for a moment and celebrate what Christ has done when we receive communion or, or the Eucharist, as it's more traditionally known. And so we'll be creating a moment for that later in the service to really just seek God's face, realign ourselves with his heart and focus in on what's important this year. Now, just a couple of things to, 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 to kind of say before we, before we carry on, just, you know, sort of from, from the outset of the, of the message this morning, which I've entitled, Who's Up First, by the way. That's the message title, if you're into the note-taking. Um, but if you're, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you're not entirely sure what communion is, if, if, you're, you know, if you're sort of new to church and new to the whole faith thing, just relax. Uh, you're in good company. Uh, this was me too, uh, 
couple of years ago in, in, in sort of the early seasons of my spiritual journey. Um, it, it, it wasn't something that I was fully aware of what to do. And, and you kind of almost feel forced into doing something. So I can totally relate to that, to that feeling of, 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 of being almost, you know, misinformed, confused even, um, of what this thing is about. So you won't be forced into doing something that you don't want to do. So you can just kind of breathe there for a moment. But I will also be sharing a message around this thing of, of priorities, which will hopefully encourage you. So you won't be forced into something. You'll still receive something. Um, and I also want to say, if you have been part of Father's House for a while or church, uh, uh, in, in general for a while, you may remember that we used to receive communion on the first Sunday of every month um, last year. And I guess that's exactly why I felt led to make this change. Because it sort of felt like it was becoming something that we just did. It felt quite routine. And it's actually something that should stand out and that shouldn't just mesh into the normal run sheet of a Sunday. So I kind of felt like we should almost rekindle the awe and reverence for this precious, precious sacrament that we get to to take part in together. And so that's kind of what I just wanted to say from the outset. And having said that, I'm going to begin with a little basic background, I suppose, to the, to the theology of what the Eucharist is. And then leading into what are some evidences in our lives that we have placed spiritual matters first? How can you define that? If, if you were to take a snapshot of where you are now, how would you be able to identify that we have placed spiritual things first? We have placed God at the center stage of our lives this year. So that's where we're going this morning. Are you guys with me? Is that okay? Cool. Let's have a look at our first key scripture together that really just unpacks what communion is. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, remember, as we said uh, last year in one of our series, that this is a pretty chaotic church. Okay, so the Apostle Paul is writing to, to a church that's got some significant issues, some of them quite funny. Uh, as you can read later in this text, you know, some of the guys, when they had communion, they were getting drunk. Not advisable, okay? Not advisable in church. Do not get drunk in church. Uh, and do not let other people go hungry because you've had all the bread, right? That's literally what was happening. And so he has to write to the church and say, come on, guys, let's just clean this up. And then he actually gives them what the real teaching of communion is. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, it's the Passover meal, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Can, can you all do something cheesy for me and just say broke it? Broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Can everyone say the word remembrance? Remembrance. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Very important last sentence there, hey? Kind of unpacks exactly what we're doing when we receive this this, this wonderful um, sacrament together. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And this is kind of the template, basically, that, that, that forms the, 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 the basis of how we share communion together as the church today. And that word Eucharist, um, just FYI, comes from the Greek word Eucharistia, uh, which literally means thanksgiving. That's what it means. It means thanksgiving. And if we break that, down, that, that word down even further, the word charis means grace. Eucharista, charis, means grace. So you could literally say that Holy Communion is a sacrament or practice that demonstrates thankfulness to God for His grace. We are giving thanks for the Lord's grace in our lives. Isn't that awesome? 
And this, this particular verse, by the way, is, is, is the reason why in some of your more uh, traditional church uh, denominations, like the Catholic faith, for instance, they literally hold the bread and the wine as the real presence of God. For them, it's, it is that sacred and that, and that holy. And, and I mean, the Lord Jesus uses some pretty direct language there, doesn't he? He says, this, this is my body. This is my blood. This is, this is what it represents. Um, and it's called the primary act of worship because it's a representing of the sacrifice. We represent. We present again the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross to one another. You know, when we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we are receiving into our lives the healing that came through his body and the forgiveness that came from his blood. This is where healing and forgiveness takes place. You know, it even goes as far as to say, just by the way, in this, in this 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, you know, half the reason why some of you in the church at Corinth at the time were sick and some had even passed away, believe it or not, is because they had appropriated this power incorrectly. They had made worship in this moment all about themselves. And it was actually all about God. And he's going, guys, this is serious. You know, this is, this is something to be, to be entered into with that level of, of awe and reverence. It's a really, really powerful passage. Um, and what he's saying is, you know, when we receive this, this, this communion together, we reveal to ourselves and to one another the greatest act of love the world has ever known, Christ on the cross. And we declare its power and its truth over our lives. And we are joining our sinfulness to the sacrifice of Christ. That's what it is. We're saying, Lord, this is what I was not able to do. I've missed the mark. And this is what you did in, on, on my behalf, in my place. And we join those two things together. You know, notice also why I asked you to say the word uh, remembrance is that, you know, we intentionally still our minds when we receive communion. We, we, we declutter things. We get rid of the chaos and we remember, we focus on what the Lord has done for us. You know, we cause our spirits to awaken again to that memory. We, we, we remind our souls of the reason why we are here. It's a, it's a sense of, of remembering what Christ went through for us. You know, I think it's a good idea every now and then, isn't it? Just to, just to hit pause from the busyness. I'm sure most of us had at least a week or two over this past uh, December to actually do that. Just hit pause. Just kind of breathe again, you know, almost a, and go, what's the real reason that I have breath in my lungs anyway? It's because of Christ. It's the reason we gather. What's the reason we do all of this? It's, it's because of Christ. He came to redeem us. He came to call to himself his own special people. He purified us, made us holy. And so we remember the Lord. And I'll also never forget um, Pastor George's message on this. I'm sure some of us were, were there when he said that how the finished work of Christ also remembers us. It brings us back together again as the body. And we were distant. We were alienated from God. We were separated. But through Christ, we are all one in faith. Amen. And you can kind of say that there's this dual purpose behind communion, that we worship the Lord, we remember him, and that he remembers us to one another. Uh, Ephesians 1 is the next passage that I wanted to look at, just speaking around this, this position that Christ has um, in our lives. And this is God's design. It says, and he put all things under his feet. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Who is his, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Ephesians is a, is a wonderful book where it just kind of starts out by explaining in beautiful language who Jesus is. And it says that God has put all things under his feet. 
Christ is the head over all things. And that's kind of, that's kind of got some serious implications for us today, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's God's intended design for the spiritual order of things in our lives. That's what he's saying. That's his purpose. You know, you were created as the body of Christ to, to be hosts of the presence of God. We were created to be hosts and, and to fulfill his mission. You know, notice how it says in this verse that we were not intended to create it, to, to carry that vision out on our own, right? It doesn't say that Christ is head of the church and so-and-so on their island, <laughs> growing spiritually at home. <laughs> Too harsh. Maybe. Bit of a rant. Sorry. It's like the body of Christ, you know, the whole body of Christ. There's everything functioning together. There's no arm by itself or foot by itself or something by itself. It's, it's one. That's how we remain connected to the source of God's life that flows through our veins. It's the body of Christ. I mean, that's what this verse is talking about. And I wondered this morning, in just thinking about this, this particular point, um, I wondered if maybe in our lives there's certain things that don't seem to be flowing and functioning as they should. Maybe there's an area of life, it could be relationships, it could be anything really, finances, career, um, even just personal journey that feels stuck in a way. And in thinking about that verse, I, I wondered maybe it's because we've substituted Christ as the head for something else. Maybe there's something else that's taken that primary position of authority that's sitting at the head of the table, that whose seat is actually reserved for Christ alone. And maybe that's where the breakthrough lies for some of us this year. It's just prioritizing the seating arrangement around the table of your, of your destiny again and putting the most important person at the head. Amen? Um, and then just kind of last major theme, I guess, uh, in terms of this, of this background to what communion is, really, really key word is that of covenant. Covenant. A communion represents a covenant that God has made with us. Uh, Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 18. This is what it says. Therefore, he is, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. We've got a promise that we're going to receive. Because a death has taken place for, for redemption from the sins or transgressions committed under the first covenant. There was a death that was done. It was Christ, right, that, that redeemed that. And how's this for a, for a little caveat? He says, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. Cool way of putting it. Christ, God, said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise, an agreement. And one of the criteria of that agreement is that the owner had to pass away for that covenant to come into effect. <laughs> it's beautiful. This idea of God making a covenant promise with his people. God made a covenant with Noah. Right? He promised preservation of people. And that's Genesis 9. We see the rainbow in the sky that God would never destroy the earth in that way again. God also made a covenant promise with Abraham. He said, you're going to receive this blessing by faith. And then we know in this new covenant that it's a two-way agreement, right? Marriage is a great example of what a modern-day covenant looks like. It's two people that agree to fulfill their marriage vows to one another. They'll honor one another. It's a sense of two-way agreeing. And there's a sacrifice there too, right? We sacrifice me for us. We sacrifice you for us. That's the modern-day equivalent. But then just consider for a, for a, for a very brief moment these, these words of Jesus and, and, and how powerful they are when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know, Jesus is saying that 
there is indeed a sacrifice needed to establish this covenant. And he's saying that his was the only possible one worthy enough to establish this covenant of God's grace. There was a death that was needed. There was a death that was needed, and that was his. And the blood that he shed establishes this. And if you think about it, it was very much one-sided, wasn't it? (laughs) Christ lived the life that we couldn't, and he died the death that we should have, so that we could be in right relationship with him. There was nothing that we could offer. And he did it because of of, of his love and his grace. The eternal covenant of God's grace to us. And that's what communion does. We give thanks for that grace. Amen. So a little background uh, into what communion is. And I suppose as we reflect on this picture and, and all the songs today have been using the same language as well, um, let's, let's consider for a moment how do we know that we have aligned ourselves and prioritized things in our lives according to that biblical design? How do we know? Is there a way of testing, of reevaluating at the start of this year our, our priorities? Can we see what it looks like to place Christ at the center? You know, because here's the thing, what happens with priorities. We all have them, whether we realize it or not, right? We all have them in our lives. And and priorities are either caused by you or they create consequences for you. That's the truth. They, They can't do nothing. They have to do one of those things. They're either caused by you or they create consequences for you. You know, you either cause things to happen in your life by choosing your priorities well or If you don't intentionally prioritize things, they determine consequences for you. What do I mean? Practical example. If you looked at the last uh, week and you saw the hours spent on each activity that you did, total them up, you would see what your priorities are. Not so. That's an amen from the the kids' church. You 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 would see what you've placed your priorities on, right? That's why I don't know if you've ever gotten to the end of the week and you're like, oh, I should have been more productive this week. It kind of feels like I left some things out. Or maybe I should have taken more time to rest and replenish this week. I feel spent. Oh, that's what happens when we neglect or fail to set their priorities. Someone else chooses them for us, right? And we bear the consequences of that choice. Similarly, if you looked at your bank statement, don't worry, we're not that kind of church. We're not going to hand in any bank statements. Just breathe. But if you were to look at your bank statement and see what ranked as most uh, spent on your, on your statement, you would know what you've prioritized, right, by what you've allocated your finances to. I know it's really, really practical, but there's, of course, a very serious spiritual significance to living our lives based on the biblical order of, in, 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 of priorities and things. And as, as we begin this year and kind of take time to orientate ourselves around what is actually most important, keeping the main thing the main thing, my hope is that we would all experience something of a refreshing and a renewing this morning and that God would reveal to us these shifts that we need to make in our lives. Is there something that is seated at the head of our table that shouldn't be there? Because this is the thing, I wouldn't want for us to miss out on any opportunities this year for what God wants to reveal to us and what, and what he wants to, to deposit into our laps simply because we had our prioritizing incorrect. You know, I want for us to receive this new thing. We always use that language at the start of a new year. God's about to do a new thing, right? Well, we have to be positioned correctly to receive it. And I really want for us to, to, to step into this year full of faith, knowing that we are able to do that simply through some of these key biblical principles that we're going to talk about now. And the first one, it's a big biblical word, but it's got some very, very powerful meaning. It's the word consecration. Consecration. These, this is one of the things, these are one of the evidences in your life that you can look at and say, 
I've positioned myself well to receive what God is in store. What does the word consecrate mean? What on earth is it talking about? Well, consecrate simply means to make or declare something as sacred. That's what it means. It's to make or declare something as sacred. It's to set something apart for a holy purpose. To set something apart for a holy purpose out of reverence for a holy God, right? That's, that's what it means. And in our lives, we, if we want to be well positioned to receive God's best, some things, some things just have to be set apart and dedicated to the Lord. Amen. I hate to break it to you, but there are some things that you have to put your stake in the ground and say, these things are non-negotiables for me. You draw a line in the sand and you say, as for me and my household, this is the consecrated standard by which we are going to, we, we are going to live our lives. That's how you bring divine order into your life. That's how you live in that Ephesians verse that says Christ is the head. Is when you draw the line in the sand, you say, for me, these things are sacred. Now, these things are set apart for him. You know, granted, the, the biblical definition obviously refers specifically to things like communion, right? Made holy for God's purpose. But this principle of declaring something sacred and belonging to God certainly applies to our lives as well. Look at, look at Joshua 24. I, I sort of half mentioned that, that uh, verse just now. Uh, Joshua 24, 15. I'm sure most of us know this verse. And this is Joshua talking. He says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve. You have to make a choice. Priorities are going to make that choice for you otherwise. Whether the gods, of your father, uh, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. You make a choice. You consecrate things to him. You place this thing as sacred to him. Give some practical examples of what, of, of what that looks like. What does that look for us? What does it look like for us right now? Well, your career. You consecrate your career to God when you say, in my business, I won't do deals that bring the Christ-like character in me into question. We don't cut corners in my business. Not because I want to be difficult or, you know, be judgmental on the rest of the people that are doing that, but because I have, I have consecrated my work to him. I have set my career, the gift that I have from God, as holy to him. And I'm living in Colossians 3.23. I'm, I'm working as unto the Lord and not, and, not, and not unto man. Amen? This is what it means. You, you, you conduct your business affairs in a holy manner. It's set apart. It's consecrated. Finances. Finances, you set aside, you consecrate the first tenth. That is the Lord's. It's holy. The tithe is sacred. I won't mess around with that. You know, time. What about our time? How do we consecrate our time? You, at some stage in the day, for however long that looks like for you, five minutes, five hours, you set aside that time with the phone off to commune with God, to be in relationship with Him. And nothing interferes with that time. It's sacred. It's holy. It's set apart for a divine purpose. You know, and this is, this is not a legalistic thing. This is character shaping, right? This is character shaping. It's essential for us as believers, if we want to grow in our relationship, in our identity with Christ, to spend that time with him every single day. This is how we grow. It's consecrated. What about, what about the church? What about the church is consecrated? You know, there, personally for me, there are some things that are just non-negotiables for my family and our church is one of them. Listen, man, there's, there is enough scriptural reasoning for us meeting together as the body of Christ on a regular basis to cover every single one of the excuses that we sometimes make as people. <laughs> you know what it's like. You wake up in the morning and 
it feels like, you know, the angel of the pillow seems to be ministering to you in a very, very powerful way, whispering sweet words in your ear. But you kind of feel that sense of unease in your heart. It's almost like that convicting feeling, right? It's like I should probably go to church today. And that usually is when you experience God in a uniquely powerful way, isn't it? When those moments when you feel like, I don't really feel like going, but then you end up going and it turns out to be one of the most amazing mornings. And for me personally, that was a thing that I wrestled with for a very, very long period of time. And kind of after understanding in, in, a, in a new way and reminding myself of this thing in, in a new way, not only because I work full-time for Father's House, but also because it's just this deep conviction of mine. I've just declared in my own life that this time on a Sunday is sacred. It's consecrated to the Lord. It's holy. It's for His. And this, this, is, this is consecrated time for Him and for my family. You know, there are no extramural activities that happen on a Sunday in the Dylan household. <laughs> unless they all happen together as a family. It's just one of those non-negotiables for me. You know, it doesn't matter how good the fishing conditions are that day. I make peace with the decision, you know, that I'm placing Christ first in my life. And guess what? What are the long-term effects of this? Well, they far outweigh the temporary inconvenience, don't they? My son is growing up in a house where he knows this is what we do together as a, as a family. And he, doesn't, he won't grow up, you know, beginning to resent Sundays because... It takes dad away, and then he ends up going and doing his own thing afterwards as well. It's too much of that in ministry, friends. Children growing up in, in the houses of, 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 of people in full-time ministry that, that begin resenting the church because we've, you know, we've, we've kind of mixed up these signals. I'm setting this example, and I'm saying this is what we do as a family. We consecrate this time together to the Lord. Amen? I know it seems quite hectic, but are you, still, are you okay? Is this, is this uh, are you still with me? Is it too convicting? Should we just go back to John 3.16 and then just have coffee and go home? Now, I, I, I really did feel this imprint on my heart this morning because it was something for me. I'm going, Lord, what is it that you want me to set aside for you this year? I sometimes place my own insecurities at the head of the table, if I'm honest. You end up hiding behind those things and, oh, no, Lord, that can't be for me. You know, that growth step's too dangerous. What are they going to think? What aren't they going to think? And he's going, you've placed your weakness at the head. Place me at the front. Consecrate your career to me and watch what happens. Amen. And then I suppose the second evidence um, of placing Christ at the head before we sing another song of worship and, and, and go in, into communion together is that of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Are you living a life characterized by thanksgiving and praise? Not just temporary, not just one hour on a Sunday, but are you living a life characterized by thanksgiving and praise? You know, I'm going to do a whole series sometime on, on, on the power of praise and thanksgiving. But just for the sake of this morning, I want to just say that when we commit to a life characterized by thanksgiving, we not only disarm the weapons that the enemy tries to use against us, but we also arm ourselves with the weapons that God provides to claim victories for the kingdom. Amen. We not only disarm the weapons of the enemy, but we also arm ourselves with God's weapons to make a difference for the kingdom. When you live a life of thanksgiving and praise, you live a life of absolute humility in reverence for who God is. And you live with an awareness of his presence in your life. And that's something to be treasured. Amen. Thanksgiving often is the gateway, the highway to Christ's presence when you wake up on, on, on a Monday morning and head off into that boardroom. Thanksgiving is the highway that paves the way for God's presence to meet you right where you are. And you know, sometimes developing a character of Thanksgiving is best cultivated when you're in a storm, isn't it? Easy to praise God when you're on, on, on top of the mountain peak. Just got a raise at work. You know, things are going well at home. Everything's smooth, but praise Him in the, in the middle of a storm. 
That's when true character of, of praise and thanksgiving is uh, developed. Daniel, consider Daniel for a moment when it comes to this idea. You know, the background to the scripture, Daniel 6 verse 10, I'm sure some of us know the story, Daniel in the lion's den, right, Sunday school, had some, uh, some admin guys that were really jealous of him, tried to find a way of catching him out so they could get him killed. And they, and they actually said, it's an amazing verse, they said, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. <laughs> it's like they knew this guy is so devoted, he's so committed to God that this is how we're going to catch him out. And so they, you know, as we know, they issued this decree that if anyone worships any other God, then he must be thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel 6 verse 10 is when, is when, Daniel, is when we pick up the story when uh, Daniel learned that this law had been signed. What did he do? He went home knelt down as usual. Can we say as, as usual? In his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. Oh man, there's so much poetry in that verse. We could spend all day on that. But just note what he does. Note his first, his first reaction, his first response to the stormy, stormy season. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. I love that so much. There's such a powerful lesson that we can learn from Daniel's character in that, in that story. Again, I think it's a whole other series. Why am I getting all these series ideas this morning? Right? I don't know what's happening here. But we know how the story ends, right? God brings deliverance for Daniel. He's, he rescues him. And um, it didn't go so well for the guys that falsely accused him. Um, and friends, this morning, I guess the question on this point is, if someone took a snapshot of our speech, the attitudes of our heart, our practices, would they say that our lives are characterized, being defined by a lifestyle of thankfulness, thanksgiving? Something for us just to reflect on. Because if we can place thanksgiving and praise to God as a priority in our lives, we can be sure that we are well on our way to positioning ourselves well to receive that which God has in store this year. Amen.